Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, choir, praise team, band. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, who even now is surrounded by myriads of angels being worshipped and adored as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are his bride. We are the church. We have the the blessing and the privilege to be able to assemble to... I'm I'm preaching. Can you tell? (laughs) We have the privilege of being able to assemble together to hear the word of, of God and be transformed by it. We are continuing our series. Pastor Rodney has started a, a series entitled Revive the Church, and we have been in First Timothy for a number of weeks. And so out of deference for the Word of God, I would invite you, those of you who are able, if you would please stand as we read First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to that passage. First Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. May God be glorified in the reading of his word. You may now be seated. Well, it's been a couple of decades since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, the one who had been so radically transformed on the Damascus Road when he encountered the risen Christ, Paul is now on his second missionary journey. He's traveling through the Mediterranean region, and specifically he is in an area that is called Asia Minor. Today it would be modern-day Turkey. And he comes across a city by the name of Ephesus. And it was a metropolitan marvel of its day. I mean, it had marketplaces and libraries and gymnasiums and theaters. I mean, it really was a sight to see. But Acts chapter 19 tells us that it also was a very dark city, full of sorcery and evil spirits and 
occultic practices. In fact, they had a patron goddess by the name of Artemis, supposedly the daughter of Zeus, and this goddess of fertility and nature and animals and the moon, and throngs of pilgrims would come every April to pay homage to her. In fact, they crafted a, a, a shrine, a temple to her called the Artemision, which interestingly is one of the seven ancient wor- uh, wonders of the world. It's, it's actually four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was a, an impressive sight. And so as the Apostle Paul, as he's walking into the city of Ephesus, and as he's burdened for the people, knowing that they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and knowing that he still has responsibilities elsewhere, he leaves some of his traveling companions, Aquila and Priscilla, there to begin the process of sharing the gospel with the people that are there. And sometime later... Paul returns, and he logs three years with the people, longer than any other place where he he settled. And he spent two of those three years going to this lecture hall called the the Hall of Tyrannus, and he he would share and he would reason with the people there. He would share the hope that ultimately can be found in Jesus Christ, and People were starting to respond. Lives were being transformed. People were burning some of their their sorcery scripts. And the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, that the word of God began to flourish and spread and grew in power. And then Paul left to serve other missional endeavors. But he never forgot the people at Ephesus. Sometime later, he's traveling back through the region. He's only about 30 miles removed from Ephesus, and he calls the Ephesian elders to meet him in a port city called Miletus. He's actually on his way to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had already told him that persecution trouble, hardship, imprisonment awaited him. He also knew that he would never see these people again. So when the Ephesian elders arrived, he said to them, shepherd God's flock, this church that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He warned them that there would be these savage wolves who would come and try to infiltrate the ranks, try to draw people away into heretical doctrines that did not embrace the veracity, the truthfulness of the word. And then in a very emotional encounter, he embraced them, he wept with them, they knelt down on the the shore there, they prayed for one another, and then Paul began his trek toward Jerusalem. Soon after his arrival, Paul was arrested. 
the Jewish people heard that he was again proclaiming this Jesus. And so he had to go before the Sanhedrin, and then he was put in prison for two years in Caesarea at the hands of the governors Felix and Festus. And then Paul would appeal to Caesar. And he was put on a ship, and he would make this pilgrimage to Rome, where again he was imprisoned. And while he was awaiting his trial before Caesar, he began to write letters of encouragement to the churches that he administered to. Churches like Colossae, the book of Colossians. The church at Philippi, Philippians. The church at Ephesus, Ephesians. These books sound familiar to you? In fact, I love Ephesians chapter 3. Here's Paul in prison. He says to the people, as I reflect upon you and think about you, I fall to my knees in prayer And I just pray that out of the riches that God has, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would know his power and that you would appreciate the height, the depth, the length, the width of his love for you and that you would be filled to the fullness, fullest. And then Paul begins to write some personal letters as well. letters to someone like Philemon. Sound familiar? And then to Timothy. Wrote two letters to Timothy. Timothy at this point had been put in charge of the church at Ephesus. He was an overseer and so here Paul begins to script these words and our pastor, Pastor Rodney, has done such a wonderful job at at kind of taking us through what we have seen in the early chapters of Timothy. For example, that Timothy, Paul said, you are to be the guardian of the truth because there are so many false doctrines. There are so many people trying to propagate false doctrines to try to infiltrate the church and destroy it. And Timothy, don't forget that you are to serve the the head. That is Christ himself. It's not about you. It's, it's, It's ultimately about the king. And then Paul would say, be in a constant state of prayer for everyone, especially for those in authority. And that you would live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and in all holiness. Why? Because God is well pleased with that. And then because God is not a God of disorder, but he is a God of order, he has prescribed certain offices, certain functions within the church. Pastor Rodney has already talked about the office of overseer or elder, one who is called to to lead the church, and then we come to the second office, and this is the one that we are going to highlight today, and that is the office of deacon. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what a deacon is, and then why we need deacons, and then why we need qualifications, and then lastly, What are 
the qualifications for deacon. So I've got my sleeves rolled up. I am ready to go, and I hope you are as well. So what is a deacon? Well, I'm glad you asked. It comes from a Greek word, diakonos, which means one who serves. It has as its rootage a word that suggests waiting on tables. That's what a deacon is. And the second question is, why in the world do we need deacons? Well, to find that answer, I think we need to go back to the earliest account of when men were set aside to serve the church. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. You should have that up on your screen. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, that is Jews that originated from Greece, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, those who originally were from the Palestine region, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. You see, what we see from this story is that there were needs in the church. And there needed to be men who would step up to the plate to serve the church in her time of need. So deacons are called, here's the word, are called to serve the ministry needs of the church. Now in this passage, it almost looks as if the 12 think that waiting on widows is beneath them, like they have something more important in which to attend. But in reality... These apostles knew of the importance to serve the church. Otherwise, they never would have brought it up to begin with. And then also, the twelve knew of their important calling to attend to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Why is the ministry of the word so important in the church? The word of God is needed to draw people to saving faith. Paul, Romans chapter 10. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then how can they preach to them unless they are sent? And then Paul recites that wonderful verse from the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The word of God cuts the heart of man. Acts chapter 2. 
Do you remember Peter at Pentecost? He begins to share the word, and the Bible says that men were cut to the heart, and 3,000 came to the church that day. The word of God also burns within the soul of man. Some of you in your life journey groups last week were in Luke chapter 24 when we were talking about the two on the road to Emmaus. And you remember the death and resurrection had occurred, but these two, they did not know that the Lord had, had been risen. And so here these two are walking along about seven miles removed to the western side of Jerusalem, and then suddenly Jesus appears, right, and starts walking with them. And they're just kind of talking back and forth about the events that had occurred in Jerusalem. And then Jesus begins to share the Old Testament text and how those texts were really a revelation of a Messiah and that he was the fulfillment of that. And so they were so intrigued, they decide, well, you need to come and hang out with us in our home. And so he goes in, and you remember, he begins to break the bread. And as he did, suddenly they knew exactly who he was. He revealed himself to them. And then when he departed, they said, did not our hearts burn within us when we heard the word of God spoken? This is why the apostles knew of the importance of service in the church by deacons so that the word of God might be attended to and boldly proclaimed. And then secondly, the apostles knew of the importance of prayer. I have a definition of prayer. Hopefully it will show up on your slide or on the screen. I believe if you really capture what prayer is in this definition, it can transform your prayer life. Listen to it. Prayer is our being ushered into the presence of God to experience the the person of God, to contemplate the purpose of God, to petition the heart of God, to encounter the power of God, and to celebrate the goodness of God. Now that's a mouthful. But prayer is an amazing privilege that we have to be able to go before the throne of the Almighty. And that is why I call pastors, listen to me, They do a disservice to the church when they are not in constant prayer for her. Thus, deacons relieve pastors to attend to the ministry of the word and to prayer. That's why the office of deacon is so critically important. Now, in our culture today, A lot of people want to be served, but heaven forbid if they would be asked to serve. It's almost as if it's beneath them to have to do so. But in God's economy, it is of utmost importance. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11? The greatest among you. The greatest among you will be your servant. And then Jesus modeled this for us in the upper room. You remember, he knew he was getting ready to go to the cross. Luke chapter 22 tells us a dispute rung up amongst the disciples as to who was the greatest. I can just imagine the conversation that was taking place during that time. I can see Peter, James, and John. Well, we were at the Mount of Transfiguration. How about the rest of you guys? Right? And so they're sitting there dickering and arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest and what did our Lord do, even though he knew that the cross was imminent. He took off his outer garment, he knelt down, and began to wash his disciples' smelly feet. And then he compelled the disciples. He said, you do likewise. Even when we serve the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, it is as if you are serving the king himself. So deacons, the deacons who were selected, who were chosen, and the word there for chosen in the original language suggests to examine intently, to scope gently about these deacons who were intentionally examined and chosen. They knew the importance of their ministry, attending to the physical needs of the church so that these apostles could attend to their spiritual needs. This is the reason why we have these two offices. So why are there qualifications for deacon anyway? I mean, why can't we just simply try to fill a vacant spot without having to go through the arduous task of trying to select people to serve? Can't we just fill the slots? Well, I believe that there are three reasons why qualifications are, in fact, necessary. Qualification number one. Qualifications reveal, here are the words, the importance and the seriousness of the calling. Qualifications reveal the importance and and the seriousness of the calling. Remember, the church at Ephesus was kind of a a new, fledgling church in a turbulent world with with lots of, of evil pressures attempting to destroy her. So there's an importance to this selection. This is not a church that is whimsical and capricious and haphazard or flying by the seat of her pants or just putting people in positions. No, the church... The early church, the church at Ephesus, knew of the importance and the seriousness of the calling as deacon. Secondly, qualifications reveal, here's the word, the expectations that the Lord has for those who would serve his bride. See, God has high expectations for his bride, the church. I mean, after all, He died for her. So he wants the very best for her. 
And the qualifications show his expectation for the office. And then lastly, qualifications reveal the need to have, okay, listen to me, committed, humble, and surrendered men in the position as deacons so that God's work might be done with, here's the word, excellence. When God created the world, he created the world with excellence. When God redeemed the world, he redeemed the world with excellence. And as God continues to refine his bride and beautifies his bride, the church, he does so with excellence. So he wants those who have been called into the position of service as deacon, he wants them to give their very best to the calling to which they have been summoned by the king, God demands, what's the word? Excellence. So if these are the reasons why we have qualifications, let's now dive into what the qualifications actually are according to our text today. Number one, this deacon is to be a man who is worthy of respect. In the original language, the word is simnus, and that word means this man has a seriousness about matters of the faith. He is not flippant. He is not careless about the gospel. Now listen, it's okay to have a sense of humor when we traverse the rough roads called life. But in matters of life and death, And I would argue that when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. This man needs to have a serious constitution about himself. He needs to understand that there are souls that are dying and going into an eternal reality totally removed from the glory, the majesty, the wonder, the beauty of the Lord himself. He needs to understand the words of a famous hymn of faith that a number of you probably know, and so I'm going to recite it now. See if this is familiar to you. Rescue the perishing. Duty demands it. Strength for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will... What's the word? Boy, you guys know it. That's great. Jesus will save. This man needs to be a man worthy of respect. He needs to have a serious constitution about himself when it comes to sharing the gospel. Number two, a deacon needs to be a man who is sincere. A man who is sincere. The original word in the original language means not double-tongued. He needs to be a man of his word, which is ultimately founded upon the word of God. 
Now, you know, tongues are interesting creatures, aren't they? You know, James tells us that you can take a magnificent horse and you can control it with a little bit in its mouth. Or a magnificent ship that is so stately and impressive, but it can be controlled with just a little rudder. Oh, but not the tongue. It sets situations on fire, doesn't it? It can bring evil into the church. It can bring corruption inside her walls. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James chapter 3, verse 8. A deacon needs to be a man who is sincere, not double-tongued, a man of his word, ultimately based upon the word of God. Number three, not indulging in much wine. Not indulging in much wine. Now, whereas Paul specifically mentions the abuse of alcohol as an impediment to effective service in the kingdom, the reality is that anything that becomes addictive or is a stranglehold, anything that takes mastery over an individual will impede that person's effective service for the kingdom. It is, in other words, a zero-sum game. The more you have a stranglehold in your life, the less that you are going to be able to effectively serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can't have both. And it can be packaged in many different ways, can it? Success, money, fame, sensual addictions, certainly alcohol, drugs, anything that gains a stranglehold on someone will impede his effectiveness. So, I guess I would say that if you're going to be addicted to something, or maybe I would say to someone, maybe we should do as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, do not be drunk with wine that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled to overflowing with his power, his presence, his provision. For when you do so, you will reach your fullest capacity in serving him as your Lord. And then not pursuing dishonest gain is the next qualifier. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Not consumed with profiting by exploiting others. Now, having gain is not inherently evil. In fact, Pastor Jimmy just shared Psalm 103, and I love the verse that he cited there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who fills the desires of your heart with good things. Again, having things is not inherently evil. But when we gain... When we profit at the expense of others, when we exploit others, 
it reveals a dark, sinister, evil, selfish heart. Dishonest gain should never be a part of someone who serves as deacon. And then, number five, holding to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Holding to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a person of constancy. Faithful again and again to God's truths. How does he hold or grasp on to the deep truths? Pastor Rodney is going to like this, what I'm getting ready to say right now. I know so because he liked it in the last hour. <laughs> I'm not walking in faith. I was in the first, first service. I mean, I, I walked in faith there. But I think, he, I think he embraces this. In order to hold the deep truths of the faith, he first has to know them. So how in the world does he know them? He has to be, here it is. He has to be in a regimen of feasting daily on God's word. He needs to have a passion like the psalmist in 119, Psalm 119, verses 97 and 98. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your words, your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever before me. And then later he goes on and says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. There's a person who holds firmly to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. That means he's not only hearing the word, he's doing it. That's the clear conscience. That's the constancy. And then what are the qualifications for a deacon's wife? Well, let's look at them. First of all, she needs to be a woman worthy of respect. This is the same word we saw in the qualifications of deacon. She needs to have a serious constitution about herself in matters of spiritual life and spiritual death. She needs to be a woman who has a passion, who is, who is so engaged and, and uh, wants to, to see people have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, even asking the Lord to use her as a mechanism, as an instrument to draw others unto himself. This is a woman, when it comes to the matters of the faith, she is not careless, she is not flippant about the gospel, she is worthy of respect. And then secondly, she is not a malicious talker. She is not a malicious talker. That is, she is not a slanderous person. Like her husband, she needs to control her tongue. By the way, the word here in the original language for malicious talker, a slanderous person, is used of the devil 35 times in the New Testament. Ladies and men, 
Don't be like the devil. A tongue that is critical, malicious, seeks to destroy others. Rather, as Paul said in Colossians 4, 6, let your words be seasoned with salt, full of grace. Be a blessing. Let the words that pour forth be a healing balm, an encouragement to those who hear them. And then thirdly, she needs to be temperate. Temperate. Like her husband, this deacon's wife should be sober and vigilant to avoid anything that would compromise her effective witness for the gospel. No strangleholds on her as well. Because if you are ensnared by something the world entices you with, you will not reach your fullest potential in serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. She needs to be temperate. And then she needs to be trustworthy in everything. Trustworthy in everything. This is a woman who is faithful and dependable. She is a woman of her word. She is a woman who people can trust and rely upon in all circumstances. And then a couple of final qualifications for the deacon. A husband of but one wife. In Greek, mias gunaikas andres. A one-woman man. Now, we know that in the annals of church history, this passage has been interpreted in many different ways as to what would qualify or disqualify a person, including people that might, been, might have been uh, divorced and remarried, and that immediately disqualifies them without ever looking at the circumstances that has brought that to pass. But in looking at the biblical context of this passage, it has more to do, listen to me, with a singular focus, love, and commitment for, or for the one to whom the deacon is married. A singular focus, a singular love, a singular commitment for the one to whom he is married. In other words, he doesn't have a roving eye. Wondering what might have been or what could be if the circumstances were right. He models in his fidelity to his wife the reality of who our Lord is with us. God doesn't have a roving eye looking out there to see maybe there's something out there that's better than the church. And by the way, parenthetically, church, we're not always beautiful, are we? Now, praise God, we've been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but unfortunately, we continue to sin, and sin is 
ugly. But praise God, even when we are faithless, he remains, what's the word? Faithful. Aren't you glad? That's a good word for an amen. Thank you for that. His grace afforded to us by the unconditional love and commitment to us makes us beautiful indeed. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And for us, praise God, the one who beholds us finds us beautiful indeed. And he is singularly faithful and committed to us. And a deacon should be a one-woman man to model in his life the way our Lord is committed to us as his bride, the church. And then lastly, the prospective deacon must, here's the word, must uh, must manage He must manage, or the word in the original language, well-ruling. He must manage his children and his household well. Now, you know, the reality is we can put on a good front for a brief period of time outside of our homes, can't we? Oh, we can, we can put on our church face and, because we don't have to keep up the impression of our godliness for lengthy periods of time. But the home is different. It's where we reveal our true selves. It's where we let our guards down. Where we log extensive time with the ones that we love the most. And the true person of who we are comes forth. That is why I believe for the deacon, listen to me, the home is the best revealer of the character and the commitment that he has to his calling. The home. If he can't manage his children and his household well, how is he going to be an effective servant of the Lord in God's house, the church? So that's a qualification. Final thoughts. Candidates for deacon must first be tested. In the original word language, dokimazo is the word. It, it was used to assess the purity of, of metals. It would be done by observation, but then also they would heat up a cauldron and they would see the, uh, the, the amount of impurities, the dross that would surface to the top. There was a, a time of testing the, the purity of something. So these deacons must be tested and then if there is nothing against them, nothing being called to account, then, praise God, let them serve as deacons. And when deacons serve well, They gain an excellent standing in the eyes of the church and in the eyes of God. How so? Well, when a deacon is faithfully serving the church, they are edified. They are blessed in his service to them. 
So it's a good standing. It's an excellent standing to them. But also, he has the opportunity to serve the king of kings and minister to his bride. And so he gains an excellent standing before the Lord as well. And then also, deacons, when they serve well, they give a a wonderful confirmation. That's the word, confirmation or assurance of their faith in Jesus Christ. We all know the adage, actions speak louder than words. So when a deacon is filled to overflowing with awe and wonder and majesty and, and just, just sees the, the, the wonder, the goodness, the grace of God, and he is filled to overflowing, he can't help but want to serve. He gives the assurance through his actions that he truly has been transformed by Christ. He can't help but serve the one who has so wonderfully served him through the cross. And then lastly, to serve as deacon. And deacons, I want you to hear me. And those that are contemplating serving as deacons, I want you to hear me as well. It is a privilege to serve the king. It is a privilege to serve the king. At the end of time, when you're before the throne of God, what's going to be most important, right? You are the beneficiary of his grace. That's most important. But how have you effectively served the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? It is, again, it is a privilege to serve the King. So there you have it. What is a deacon? Why do we have deacons? Why do we have qualifications? What are the qualifications? It's good for us as a church to revisit these so that we understand the importance of this office. As we bring our time to a close and as our praise team will be making its way up to the stage, let me share just one brief thing with you. Some of you may be hearing me talk about the church, and of course you're attending a church today but you may not be part of the true church. The reality is that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve the fullest measure of God's punitive wrath poured out upon us. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, who went to a cross, he was hoisted up, willingly endured the cross, and then paid the only sufficient payment that could be paid for our sin. And then as he was laid into the tomb, three days later, he burst forth showing his victory and his triumph over sin and death. And he, by his goodness, he extends to us his grace. But we have to receive it. And you receive it by faith. You come to a place that you say, Lord Jesus, I I realize now that I'm a sinner. I'm estranged from you. I know that I deserve your wrath. And God, thank you that you came and you paid the sin penalty for me. You went to the cross. You rose three days later. And now you extend that gift to me. And by faith, I take it. I receive it. And I confess you as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says if we confess our sins, guess what? Praise God, he has... 
He's offered to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. If you've not made that commitment during a time of response, we will have pastors that will be here at the altar. We'll also have some of those who will be in Guest Central afterwards. Let today be the day of your salvation. It will certainly be the most important decision that you could have ever made. God bless you, and may God be honored in the reading and the hearing of his word today. Let's stand as we continue to worship.